So, Mark. Yes? In this week's movie, our plucky advertising agent, Jennifer Aniston, gets the job of her career after designing a commercial in which a company brags about being second best. I I thought 13 going on 30 was bad. <laughs> this one takes the cake of terrible fictional ad campaigns. It made me think of Mr. Mom and how in Mr. Mom, when the mom goes back to work, she's like doing ad work for like a tuna company or something. And her big marketing idea is like, just advertise the price and then people will see it's cheap and they'll buy it. And it's like revolutionary and it works. And this one is, tell everyone you sell number two. And this will somehow make you a huge hit. Like, they're going to launch a Super Bowl ad campaign around the premise of, everyone likes someone else more than us. It's baffling. Baffling. For an ad. The argument is not like, our product is really good. The argument is not, we are higher quality. The argument is just, we're number two, and that's pretty good. There's just even better ways to spin being the second best. Just be like, not everyone has the highest taste. Yeah. It's so so weird. And so, (laughs) I was baffled by this ad campaign that everyone just fawns over for the entire movie. And so I was wondering, what are your favorite bad or incomprehensible ad campaigns. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the Folgers Christmas Incest commercial. (laughs) They waited up all night for you, you know. It's a long way from West Africa. Oh, real coffee. He's here. I brought you something from far away. (laughs) Really? Oh. What are you doing? You're my present this year. It must be mentioned, it's been discussed enough elsewhere that if you don't know about it, I'm sure you can find plenty of listicles that discuss it. But it you must know, be that makes brought me think up. of Peloton Husband. Peloton Husband, also great. What's funny is that was Christmas 2019, and then the next year everyone did buy Pelotons. Yes, but then the following year... Mr. Big died on a Peloton. <laughs> he was murdered by a Peloton. <laughs> and then a Peloton sale tracked him down dropped. in a dark alley and hit him over the head with a lead pipe. <laughs> I cannot believe. It makes sense that it crashed. And if there wasn't that thing, I think the price would have still crashed. But it's so funny. It's also funny because I think it was like the week after the first Chris Noth commercial for Peloton, the allegations came out against him. Yes. It was like this like 10-day period where, and just like that comes out, Mr. Big is killed on a Peloton, Chris Noth does a Peloton ad, and then I don't remember what the allegations were for. Me neither, but they were really bad. Yes. My other thought was the one I always consider to be a perfect encapsulation of American fragile masculinity is the weird Dr. Pepper... I want to say it's like Dr. Pepper 10. Yes. Where it's not, it's like, it's not fully diet soda. And it's for men only. Diet Dr. Pepper, we all know diet soda's for women. This one's for men. This is for the dudes. Only dudes can drink this soda. Hey, ladies. Enjoying the film? Of course not. Because this is our movie! 
And Dr. Pepper 10 is our soda. It's only 10 manly calories, but with all 23 flavors of Dr. Pepper. It's what guys want, like this. Catchphrase. So you can keep the romantic comedies and lady drinks. We're good. Dr. Pepper 10, it's not for women. Dude, so in the last several episodes of the most recent season of Survivor, I kept getting ads for this company called Dave's Killer Bread, which is literally a loaf of bread, but for men. I have tried Dave's Killer Bread. It's pretty good. Okay. I didn't know that was their ad campaign style, but it's I it's founded by a um person who served time in jail and founded the company as a way to rebuild his life. All right. I mean, that's great. And I'm happy for that. <laughs> so I do like that. I'm happy they have the money to advertise on Survivor. Yeah. Its main thing is that it's full of protein. It's riding that wave. Okay. Where it's like a bagel will have, you know, 15 grams of protein or something. I don't know. My mom buys it because it's got protein. But I've never seen a... Cr- I didn't even know they were big enough for commercials. Speaking of, like, manly stuff, you do not watch the national football league i do not i'm assuming this has been true for most of your life uh it is because especially when i was a kid i wasn't allowed to because my dad said too many swears when he watched football (laughs) um who's your dad's team the bears okay so a (laughs) reason for a lot of swearing yeah (laughs) his sports that he follows are the chicago bears and the illinois li and i so he's got so reason to curse. He has never been fun to watch sports with. There was this Super Bowl commercial in like 2010. And this is one of those things where you're like, huh, this commercial didn't work because I don't remember what it was a commercial for. Okay, uh, it was apparently an ad for Dockers. But the ad was men in their tidy whities and sh- like dress shirts wandering a field singing a song about how I wear no pants. I wear no pants. I wear no pants. I wear, I wear, I wear, wear no, wear no pants. To stop and have a glass, for I wear no pants. I wear no pants. Calling all men. It's time to wear the pants. But, I mean, aren't Dockers pants? So I, I guess that's it. Presumably at the end of this ad, like, their day is saved by getting pants? You Let's will notice a common thread amongst most American commercials that make you go, huh? And it's all due to masculinity. Um, so, it, so yeah, so they're walking through the field. And then it ends with a cut to a logo, a Dockers logo, a dude from the neck down wearing a white t-shirt and pants. And it says, wear the pants, Dockers. I guess being like, be the man, wear the pants. I guess. Advertising to men is just always so strange. It's really weird. Also, like, I feel like the adult men being targeted by that ad don't buy their own pants. I have to watch this commercial later. It sounds... (laughs) I don't remember it at all. The other one I thought of is much more recent. Mark, can you tell me the name of this summer's Jurassic World movie? Dominion. Okay, it is. 
It's impressive that you know that because that name appears in zero trailers for the movie. I have read more about this series than you would think, even having watched none of them. Because I find the Jurassic World movies as a concept to be interesting, while I have no interest in watching them. Every Jurassic World trailer and, like, TV spot just ends with the Jurassic World logo, like, in amber. Like, it never has a title. You don't need a title. Yes, I understand you don't need a title to sell it, but I just think it's really weird to choose to advertise a movie without a name. Is it a little bit of a flex? Sure, but, like, why? Why have the name, then? We know that they're not advertising it with their name. They are entirely advertising it with Laura Dern being in the movie. I mean, they kind of Sam Neill. But I, I'm actually not kidding. I think they are really selling the Sam Neill-Laura Dern return. They absolutely are. That's what you need. You don't need a name. You have a name. The name is Laura Dern. We are recording this two days before Jurassic World Dominion opens, which tells you something about how far in advance we are recording this summer. Um... I'm gonna see it, but, like, boy, am I not that interested. <laughs> oh my god, how could we not have discussed this advertising campaign, Will? Mr. Peanut died. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Peanut died, and within a month, the world had shut down. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Peanut died, and then there was a reborn Mr. Peanut, who is now, like, a few months old, but is still 21. Because they have a commercial where he goes to a bar. No, he's age- He's not Lil Peanut anymore. <sighs> that? I never watched it. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. But this was I read... like an ongoing ad campaign. Like, he died and then was reborn. He was Baby Nut for a bit, then he was Peanut Jr. And according to Wikipedia, in February 2021, he returned to adulthood. Well, I good for him. But... That was weird. Why kill off your 100-year-old capitalist mascot? And they made him a weird little baby, and that false god brought ruin upon the world. It's all Mr. Peanut's fault. I mean, more the baby nut. Mr. Peanut died and was replaced with a grim approximation. I think that the spirit of Mr. Peanut was so offended at his death that he cursed the world. Oh, that's interesting. That's my pet theory. I can't believe we went a solid 10 minutes without bringing up the death of Mr. Peanut. I'm so disappointed in us. I mean, that was another Super Bowl ad, and I did not watch the Super Bowl that year. I rewatched Parasite that night. Better choice. Yeah, I feel good about it. The Super Bowl is so long and so boring. So much of it is just people standing. Like, a whistle blows, then people stand. Then there's commercials. And then a ball is thrown, and then people stand. Starting to connect that to this week's episode, did you know Jay Moore had, like, a 10-year career as, like, a sports radio anchor? I barely know who Jay Moore is, so I'm gonna go with no. I learned this today and was astonished. But I'd love to hear more on this week's episode of We Love the Love, a Hollywood (laughs) romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, thanks to the suggestion from our listener, Jakendra, 
we are taking a look at the romance of the 1997 Jennifer Aniston vehicle, Picture Perfect. Had you heard of this movie? I had not. So Jakendra emailed us in March, and she suggested a couple of movies to us, but one of them, her first one, was Picture Perfect, which she identified as a Jennifer Aniston, Kevin Bacon movie. Which is interesting, because Bacon is very much the third wheel of this romance. He's the third wheel, but the second lead, I would say. I feel like I got a lot more Bacon than more. But it also might be because I was just more interested in Kevin Bacon, because his character was so bad. I mean, Kevin Bacon, the mullet he has in this movie. That's that's even, it. No, I'm like, Mark, you saw Solo, right? Yes. A Star Wars story? I did. You know the Paul Bettany character in that? The, like, crime boss that they okay. work for? Yeah. So, Solo is this movie where they had shot most of it, directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And it was, like, mostly a comedy. And Lucasfilm didn't like the direction it was going. And there were a bunch of reports about how, like, Alden Aaron, right, can't do the job. I think he's good in the movie. It's pretty clear that mostly it was Lucasfilm did not like this wacko Lord and Miller comedy they were getting. So, Lord and Miller get fired and replaced with Ron Howard. And Ron Howard reshoots most of that movie, brings in his buddy Paul Bettany to play the villain because they cannot get the original crime boss. In the original comedy version of Solo, the crime boss was played by Idris Elba as an anthropomorphic lion. We were robbed. And all I could think anytime Kevin Bacon strode into a scene in this movie with his like flowing mullet, because it does, it's not like a tight mullet. This thing has waves. All I could think of was, like, this is what the Idris Elba lion crime boss was going to be like. I think that the billing in this movie should have gone Jennifer Aniston, Kevin Bacon's hair, Olympia Dukakis, Kevin Bacon, Jay Moore. Well, Kevin Bacon got the and. Oh, he did? Okay. I couldn't remember. Honestly, in my world, Olympia Dukakis, Jennifer Aniston, (laughs) the rest... Olympia Dukakis has such a weird role in this movie. It's so bizarre. She was so frantic at all times. And obviously my most iconic role is Olympia Dukakis in Moonstruck. Right. And she's just so different. Right. In Moonstruck, she was Cher's mom. Now she's Jennifer Aniston's mom. And she is just like panicked that her daughter might not get married. At all times. At all times. This is She's her like calling mood. at random hours of the day to be like, are you married yet? And somehow she also looks exactly the same a whole decade later. Yeah. My iconic Olympia Dukakis, as much as I love Moonstruck, and I, th- I like Moonstruck better as a movie, my iconic Olympia Dukakis is Steel Magnolias. Oh, yeah. That's some good Dukakis. But Moonstruck is... Ugh. Especially after watching it at a drive-in movie theater. That movie will always hold a special place in my heart. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect movie. But speaking of, of movies that may or may not be perfect, what did you think of Picture Perfect? Was it a perfect picture? It was very interesting. Because, like, there's so much going on. But also, it follows so many of the sitcom tropes. And yet... I, like, can't put my finger on what was so, like, different about this movie. Well, one thing, it starts with an extended discussion about the use of condoms and AIDS at the beginning of the movie. Very 90s in its safe sex discourse. 
and that's how it opens. It opens with literally someone's... over a black screen while like credits are still rolling. You just hear a voice that says like, "Oh, I don't really need to wear one." Yeah, he's like, "I got tested recently, and I have excellent control, unbelievable control, unbelievable control." And the fact that she didn't kick him out immediately—I mean, she basically does kick him out immediately. Yeah. I would be like, I w- like you the- would have heard a thud on the ground as he fell off the couch. Yeah, she's like trying to get him out, and he's like, I guess I could wear one, but like, it's just not going to be as good. And it's all like, right, like this guy did not grow up in a post Magic Johnson telling people to wear condoms world. It was fascinating that this is how this movie started because the rest of the movie is very chaste. Yeah. I mean, there is well, I guess the sex Kevin Bacon. There is sex in it, but you don't get that much discussion of sex or depiction. Like you get shirtless Kevin Bacon in bed, but the most you see is like kissing, and they don't really talk about sex after that. Very frank discussion. I was so thrown by how strongly it started that I rewound it like twice and finally put on subtitles to make sure I was hearing right. It was very interesting, and so it just. It, like, threw me off for the rest of the movie. I felt like I was on the back foot. I mean, speaking of it being in the 90s, there's also just the absolute novelty of a wedding videographer. Oh, yeah. I didn't even really... I was, like, confused how that was such a big plot point, but I never thought about the fact that that would have been a new thing. Yeah. So every time Jay Moore meets somebody, they're like, you can make a living doing that? I mean, my parents got married in 89 and have a wedding video. I assume it was, like, it had been around for a while. Right, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a brand new thing, but it's clearly new enough that, or at the very least, people's conception of the wedding industrial complex is such yeah, that. because nowadays you hear wedding photographer and you're just like, oh, you are probably doing fairly well. Yeah. At least in the DC market. <laughs> yeah, we're both getting married this year. I guess by the time this episode comes out, I am married. Yes, I am still still engaged. Still affianced. Affianced. But overall, I enjoyed this movie. I never knew fully what to make of it. Because it has one of the most wild lies of any <laughs> rom-com I have seen. The central lie of this movie is so hard to fathom. Well, the funny thing about it is, like, the central lie of, like, having a guy and being like, this is my fiance. It is like the level up of the, like, can't buy me love to all the boys I've loved before. Like, this is my boyfriend who's not really my boyfriend. Those are all movies about teenagers. And this one, it's adults. And so it's gone to this extra level that is crazy. And it's also people that don't know each other. Usually these deals have some sort of connection between them. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, there's like an element of the proposal to it where he has to study up on her. But even in the proposal, they've known each other for a while. Actually, I think it's her that has to study up on him because he knows everything about her. So I watched this movie in two chunks because I'm currently in the middle of the AP reading. I'm virtually scoring AP exams. And I had to go and read students not understanding that running water is not powered by electricity. (laughs) Also, I had to read students thinking that you cannot have a gym without electricity. But that's a story for another day. The point is, I watched the first hour of this one day, and then the next day I watched the remaining, like, 35 minutes. And in a way, this was a flip of my cat people experience, where 
Cat People, I found part one kind of boring and part two I loved. This time, I was really kind of vibing with the weirdness of the first hour. It's so strange. And, like, you imagine, like, how Kevin Dunn's office must run. (laughs) This, like, weird business where he insists on only promoting people who have no financial stability. And then in the second half hour, like, so I guess, like, you know, the last third of the movie, I just increasingly lost interest in large part because, like, once the characters had to start having sincere feelings, I was like, I don't care about this. This is too stupid. (laughs) Especially when Jennifer Aniston, at the end of the movie, had to give not one, but two big monologues (laughs) because not everyone was at the place where she gave the first one. I was like, what are we doing here? That was so ridiculous. The grand romantic gesture of this one. But also that there are basically two. There's the grand romantic gesture at work, but because he's not there to see it, she has to go and do another grand romantic gesture immediately afterwards. Yeah, she has to apologize to all of the people at work and then has to go win him back instead of doing it at the same time, which is the general move. So it does feel disjointed. And also, I would be so mad if this happened at my wedding. (laughs) It's like... So mad. It is preposterous that everyone at the wedding seems to be on board with Jennifer Aniston interrupting it in this way. And it's also in a church, so it's a religious ceremony. Yeah. That she's interrupting on video. I cannot fathom these events taking place in the real world. This is one of the least believable rom-coms I've watched. Well, that's a thing that we are going to get to discuss. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, this is our first Jennifer Aniston movie. Well, there, how many are there? I guess she's been in a lot of movies. She's done a bunch. She's a movie star. She is. I just, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I haven't seen that many Jennifer Aniston movies. Well, that's because until this podcast, you had not seen a lot of romantic comedies. That is true. I have seen Office Space. Okay. But yeah, like, beginning in the 90s, or beginning around this point, she's of being set up as, like, the next big rom-com lead, which makes sense, right? She's the romantic lead of America's favorite TV comedy. And so she does that for a while. You know, she does the Sandlers. And she kind of is just plugging away making those rom-coms until rom-coms don't exist anymore. And even then, she, like, transitions into, like, other comedies. Like, she's one of the horrible bosses. She is one of the horrible bosses. She's or, a like, horrible dentist. movie. I have not watched it. Yeah, it's not good. And yeah, she she's in Gary Marshall's Mother's Day. Of course. Oh, I forgot about Dumplin', a movie I did not watch. I also forgot about Dumplin'. Yeah, no, she is uh she's worked steadily. She's just plugged away. She is in the truly unhinged movie, Rumor Has It, which is unfortunately as boring as it is unhinged, so like I don't want us to do it on this podcast. But that's the movie where Kevin Costner is like no, Mark, it's this movie where uh, Mark Ruffalo is dating Jennifer Aniston and discovers that, like, her family is the inspiration for The Graduate. <laughs> and so, like, then in it, like, Kevin Costner is, like, the dude. And it's like Kevin Costner has, like, banged every generation of woman in this family. I've heard of this. Well, we talked about it on our Graduate episode. Okay. That would explain that. But this is, like, right at the beginning of Aniston's film career you know she's only credited in one movie before friends premieres that of course is leprechaun yes i was about to say and then that one i did know she does like one or two movies that come out between the first two seasons of friends and then this movie shoots in the summer of 1996 between seasons two and three 
and it comes out the following summer. So this is like right as Friends is beginning to blow up. And was she the least famous friend at the time, or was she among the most? She might, can't have been among the most if her only movie was Leprechaun. I mean, none of them were huge when it premiered. That was part of the thing of the show, was it, like, was all of these relatively new people, and there was a sense of, like, okay, we've got five new stars here. Yeah. How many people are on Friends? Six new stars. I was looking up Courtney Cox to see what her career was like before, and I typed in C-O- you are and it filled in courtney cox bangs because of the amount of times i've googled her bangs <laughs> oh she worked at bethesda softworks in the 80s before the dancing in the dark video that was her job so yeah it looks like she had been around some of it yeah so her thing is she got scream off of friends right that's her big like movie star movie yeah good movie i have only seen scream 2022 you should watch Scream. I did enjoy it. Yeah, I I intended to. Having seen a scary movie, you will probably know a lot of what will happen in Scream. Well, yeah. But it was still good. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So, speaking of connections to 90s television, in addition to starring Jennifer Aniston, this movie is written by Arlene Sorkin, who was the voice of Harley Quinn on Batman the Animated Series. I did read that. And, like... That's the iconic Harley Quinn voice, right? She Yes, she is the original Harley Quinn. Like, that character was created for the TV show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. There's a lot of, like, TV talent in this movie. It's directed by Glenn Gordon Karen, who, like, directed a couple of other movies, but, like, he's a TV guy. He created Moonlighting, so we have him to thank for Bruce Willis. He created Medium, and, Mark, he was the showrunner of your beloved Bull for seasons two through five. Whoa. <laughs> When have I ever talked about the show Bull? Many, many times. <laughs> have I? I don't I have think you've seen an Bull. episode of it, but you have talked about it no. many times. I think including on this show. I mean, it's really funny that there is a show just called Bull, but it's not funny because I think it got canceled for having a very toxic culture. Mark, do you remember Probably what the not. TV show Bull is about? Yeah, it's a lawyer show starring the guy from NCIS. Yes, but the lawyer is based on the early career of Dr. Phil. I forgot that part. Now I know why I talk about Bull a lot. Yeah. God. You probably talked about it more back when we were watching Godfriended Me because you were seeing CBS promos. Yeah, we saw a lot of commercials for Bull. And other fine television shows on the Columbia Broadcasting System. My God, that... Oh, they were all so bad. So, uh, you know, we've got Aniston, we've got Kevin Bacon, who's just in the midst of his 90s run, looking like a lion crime boss. That hair was iconic. Everything. And then the, the third leg of our little romantic stool is Jay Moore, who we have seen before as Bob Sugar, the up-and-coming agent in Jerry Maguire, who cuts Jerry's legs out from under him. Oh, that is him. Yeah. He was much meaner. In that movie, yes. Yeah, meanness really does change your appearance. Like, when you're a mean character, at least for me. I recognized him immediately, but I've probably seen Jerry Maguire a few more times than you. Yes, several, I believe. Jay Moore was, like, a guy who was around. He had done two seasons of SNL earlier in the 90s, but he has always been pretty diplomatic in talking about this, but it sounds like this was a pretty miserable experience for him. He has never named the movie, but he has alluded several times to being in a movie 
where the female lead was openly angry that he had been cast in it. And, like, this is the only movie in his filmography that fits. Why would she be angry? So, according to him, she openly talked during rehearsals about how the one guy she hated got cast over five other people that got screen tested. There are rumors that she had really wanted Tate Donovan, who she was dating at the time, to get the part. Again, Moore has really walked the line of, like, alluding to these events without laying it all out there. But it's pretty clear this is the movie he's talking about. That's so frustrating for him. I cannot imagine working in an environment like that. He's got a kisser! Ugh. Like, more than once, too. Yeah, and, like, I don't mean this to, like, make everybody, like, hate Jennifer Aniston. Like, she was at a, like, crazy point in the culture, too. But it sounds like this may not have been the most pleasant movie to be making. Wait, Will, I remembered you said something that I was going to say, and I finally remembered what it is. You said the director of this, or the writer of this, created Medium, the TV show. The director. The director. I would like to give a special shout out to Alison Dubois, the psychic that inspired the show Medium, and also gave us the most iconic episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, in which she is at a dinner party, known as the Dinner Party from Hell, smoking an e-cigarette before those were a thing anyone was smoking, and said, your husband will never emotionally fulfill you to one of the other housewives. So if somebody's husband's cheating on them or something, she'll know it. And you just don't. No, well, couldn't you just tell us stuff without telling us anything scary? Something that's not scary? Yeah. Oh my God, but what do I want to tell you might be irritating to you. So I so hesitate. Okay. Okay. Have you been married twice? No. Oh. oh. Well, then that's the last one you have. I guess that's good news. <laughs> I was thinking she was going to have to get married again, which meaning meaning you'd have a divorce. If my husband um, ever leaves me, I'm going with him. He will never emotionally fulfill you. Ever. Know that. As soon as the kids are bigger, you'll have nothing in common. This woman is one of the housewives? No, she was a friend of one of the housewives. Camille Grammer. Kelsey Grammer's ex-wife, who uh, also helped produce Medium. Okay. If there was an episode of The Real Housewives you ever wanted to watch where you don't need any context and it's just batshit, The Dinner Party from Hell is my recommendation. I would watch it with you. I would probably never seek it out myself. No. But, oh my god. It also made me want to watch Medium, because there's no way (laughs) that this show accurately depicts this woman. Would you say it's the bull of medium shows? (laughs) It is the bull of medium shows. That's not Jennifer Garner. Jennifer Garner is the ghost whisperer, right? Which I think is also created by Glenn Gordon Karen. What's the difference between the two shows? Okay, the ghost whisperer. Oh, is Jennifer Love Hewitt. Wrong Jennifer. Why are there so many Jennifers? There was a moment. Okay, Glenn Gordon Garen did not create the Ghost Whisperer, so that's on me. There was no way, because I'm pretty sure it was just a direct ripoff. Oh, Medium is the one with Patricia Arquette. There we go. Uh, Alison Dubois is a police psychic, though. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Love that job, police psychic that exists (laughs) on a million TV shows. And in real life, that's the worst part. That's because there's the, the, the feedback loop between cop shows and cops in real life is completely out of hand. 
Yes. That is entirely accurate. So should we start talking about the plot of this movie? Uh, Yeah, Picture Perfect opened August 1st, 1997 in fifth place with $7 million. It ultimately grossed $31 million in North America against an $18 million budget. Did perfectly fine as a late summer release. Nobody was mad about it. Um, Here's some 90s for you. Picture Perfect opened in fifth place. Ahead of it, in number one was Air Force One. Number two, Spawn. Number three, George of the Jungle. Number four, Men in Black. And opening in number seventh this same week, Air Bud. That, that tracks. Seventh sounds right. You know, there's something about this movie that just feels like it opened at the same time as Air Bud. I mean, this is one of the Air Bud cinematic universe movies. Alongside Turbo? It's the only explanation for how she can pitch an idea and people are so impressed is because she's actually a golden retriever. <laughs> so they're well- impressed that she's able to pitch it all. Doesn't matter that the idea is terrible. Because the thing is, in the Airbud baseball movie, he didn't pitch. He was, you know, fielding the ball. <laughs> Imagine watching a dog spit out a baseball so fast that it like could be eighty-five miles an hour. My God, that would be so. All right, time to call the Air Buddies. We have a movie to make. I'm more into the Santa Buddies, if that works. Aren't they the same buddies? I don't know. I've never seen any of these movies. I believe that I have watched Airbud, but on VHS, along with every other person who has seen Airbud. I was Air gonna Bud. say, in its natural place. <laughs> yeah. I assume it's on like Airbud's on like Disney Plus, right? That was a that was a Disney movie. Uh Airbud not on Disney Plus, but a lot of Buddies movies are. <laughs> we got Santa Was Airbud really Disney? Santa Paws 2. Snow Buddies, Treasure Buddies, Super Buddies, The Search for Santa Paws, Spooky Buddies, and Space Buddies. Uh, Air Bud was distributed by Disney, but they may not own it. It is not available on Netflix. There was a link to it, and then it was not there. Apparently, yeah, you have to like pay for it. it. It's, it's owned by some like Canadian company. Huh. Whatever. Canada, man. Let's talk about Picture Perfect. All right. So, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points to help us guide the conversation. Five, I should not make a quick bite jokes because that movie would have come out over a month ago. Yeah, also, I don't know if the Quibi, I don't know if the Quibi jokes made it into the final version of that episode because of how I had to edit around stuff. Fair enough. Point number one. Okay, point number one is just kind of laying out where everything is at the start of the movie. So... Jennifer Aniston is 29. She is unmarried to the dismay of her helicopter mom, Olympia Dukakis. And she is fixated on her coworker, Kevin Bacon, who has flowing locks of hair. I get it. I mean, he's a terrible guy, but that hair, something enchanting about it. They have seem to have like a nice enough work friendship in part because he like steals from the company he like uses his company credit card to like go out to dinner presumably with like women he's seeing and then he tells accounting that it's business dinners with aniston that's like how we're introduced to him he's like hey like if accounting asks you had dinner with me last night he's the bad boy and she's like you know i'd probably be better able to lie if we actually had dinner together and he's like no you're too nice you wouldn't be able to hang with me god he's awful He's also a weird character. Like, yeah. we're going to get to talk about him. He doesn't make any sense. So that's the deal there. 
But she also has a very fun work best friend. She the does. rom-com best friend is tough, but this person plays it well. I loved when they were on the roof tanning during their lunch break. Yeah, so this character is played by Ileana Douglas. I have no idea what her name is. Uh, Jennifer Aniston's name is Kate. I know that. Her name is Darcy. Okay, that's a good friend name. So the other thing that's going on is she starts off the movie narrating to Darcy about how she's decided, like, I don't need to date anymore. Like, I've decided I'm made to be single. But then she goes to this wedding where she is the only unmarried woman, it seems. It just can't be true. It's such a big wedding. It's a big wedding. It's like an Indian wedding. But she is described as the single friend. Yeah, well, when her friend is going to toss her bouquet, she is the only person. So she's just handed it. And then, meanwhile, the videographer has, for some reason, caught the garter. I hate that tradition so much. We've discussed it extensively. It's gross. I know, but I just wanted to reiterate. But also, like, if you're the videographer working a wedding, you should be in no position to catch the garter. Yeah, what is he doing? I guess he's also a friend. Because he was a working... It was like a... was working at a friend's wedding, which he didn't sound thrilled about. That's true. But so that's how she meets Nick, played by Jay Moore. There are a couple of pictures taken of them. And like the next Monday, she's showing them to Darcy at work and being like, look at this weird thing I had to go through at work. Right. They are very close friends, so it makes sense. But then this is where her boss comes up and just like openly admits that he's discriminating. Yeah. So... This is where, like, they're selling their ad campaign. They have to sell to this mustard company. And Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Aniston, by the way, is the only person who ever works late at this office. (laughs) Like, everything at the office is high stress. She's the only one who's ever there late. Well, she's the only single one. Because she doesn't have commitments at home. So, they get the mustard ad somehow by being like, tell everyone you stink. Didn't Cindy Crawford graduate second in her class? Did Cindy Crawford graduate? I think she did, second in her class, in in biochemistry, I think. Excuse me? Please, my friend, my colleague, is having an epiphany. Oh. Okay. Um, I'll... I'll uh, I'll give you the print first. Um, okay, big picture of Cindy Crawford. Already this is good. The headline reads, If you never gave number two a try, think what you'd be missing. Then comes the picture of Cindy. And beneath that, a little log line that says, Cindy Crawford graduated second from Podunk University, BS in biochemistry. Then on the facing page, a beauty shot of Golden's Mustard. And beneath that, in big letters, Golden's Mustard. Number two, and that ain't bad. And when Kevin Dunn is announcing the team of the people who are going to work on it, he names, like, everybody but her. And she's like, this was my idea. How am I not on this thing? And this really takes us to point number two. Point number two is the lie, because as we've said already, this is one of those rom-coms organized around a lie. And what Aniston learns is that Kevin Dunn refuses to promote her because he doesn't want to promote anybody who's not in debt. He doesn't want to promote anyone that could easily just move to a new company and and steal customers. And he, like, openly admits to this, and the movie is like, wow, this is, like, frustrating, but I guess this is how it is. Like... Probably one of the more bizarre things in this movie is sort of how little it interrogates all of the horrible things that Jennifer Aniston has to wrestle with. Yeah, the interesting thing, though, is it's very equal opportunity awfulness because 
there's some pretty well-placed women in the company who are treated well, but they just also have to be married. Or have a lot of debt. Or, yeah. Like, he doesn't mind an unmarried person as long as they're living above their means. Yeah, they have to own a house. Yeah, he says to Aniston, he's like, you live in an apartment. Like, you're out of college. You could just leave. And I'm like, sir, she lives in Manhattan. She is living above her means. How old is she again? She's 29. I struggle with her saying that she's talking about freezing her eggs at 29. I think there are two reasons for that. One is getting her mom off her case, which says might not even be true. The other is, remember, at the start of the movie, she also decides she's made to be single. After experience with that guy, I'd be tempted by permanent singlehood. The dude who wouldn't wear a condom. So the lie is that Darcy's response to all of this is like, you know what? Here, you've got these photos of you with some random dude. And Darcy tells Kevin Dunn that Kate is engaged. And that he lives in Massachusetts, and that's why no one has met him. And Kevin Dunn is like, oh, great. All right, you're on the team. Yeah, you're hired. And then, like, immediately, Kevin Bacon walks in and is like, hey, I like you. Let's go have sex. Like, immediately, as soon as it becomes cheating. He's like that woman from the Bob's Burgers Thanksgiving episode who will only (laughs) have sex with married men. I respect myself too much to not be the other woman. We have had this conversation, okay? I'm engaged to be married. We made this mistake once. I cannot do it again. I can't. You know, I mean, God, you know I like you. I can't deny that. But my heart belongs to Nick. And so, yeah, like, for her, this is great. Like, they have sex. She's getting everything she wants. And the next day, he finds her at work, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, like... But don't tell Nick. It would be cruel to tell him. It would just upset him. And he's clearly given this speech a hundred times. Yeah, he is shady. Shady is all hell. Yeah, uh, Kevin Bacon in this movie is a bad dude. So then, like, this all keeps going. And she is enjoying the time she's spending with Kevin Bacon. Right, and she's also enjoying, like, getting to be more involved in work on her bad ad campaign. There's another time, like, she and Kevin Bacon have sex, and he, like monologues to her sleeping body about how he feels like actually they're the ones in a relationship and he likes it. You know, normally this would be about the time that I'd leave. Most of the women I get involved with are either married or have a boyfriend. It's always seemed to work pretty well for me. And the thing with that is that you always kind of feel them looking past you, trying to Steal a glimpse of the clock or listening for a voice on the answering machine. But you, I don't know. It's like, even though you're engaged, when you're with me, I really feel like you're with me, you know? You know what the scary thing is? I actually kind of like it. He's so weird. It's so strange. But this all kind of comes to a head 40 minutes into the movie when Jay Moore becomes a hero because he's shooting a wedding in a building that catches fire and he grabs a kid and jumps backwards out a window, lands on his arm and breaks it and he's like a local news hero. Well, it must be national because it happens in Boston, doesn't it? Oh, that's true. It at least made its way to New York. So that's bad news for Kate because now everyone's like, isn't that your fiance? Wow. 
To which I mostly say, good for them for remembering what he looked like. I know. I would not be able to. Yeah, she could have just been like, no, that's a different dude. It's weird that he looks like my fiance. I guess the Boston thing is too much. And she had said he worked in, like, video production and the guy had a camera. So, yeah, it'd be hard to lie. Yeah. I'm just, it is crazy that her coworkers recognized him. So, she goes up to New England, finds Jay Moore, and offers him $1,000 to come to a business dinner and stage a breakup. Which, I will say, they don't need to break up at the dinner for it to be believable. No, they could just say, we broke up. She just says we broke up after the dinner. Like, I think it's good if he's able to get her there for the dinner, but it's still just like, you don't have to break up there. Yeah, it's weird that she insists on this public thing, and that's what the whole problem comes from. Meanwhile, there's like a couple of days of them like getting to know each other a little bit because she's like made up this whole false history of their relationship. She gives him like a binder and insists that he learn it. Meanwhile, Kevin Bacon is, like, spiraling because he monologued to her sleeping body about how he thinks they should be in a relationship. And now when he sees her, like, making out with Jay Moore, he's like, oh, my gosh, I can't handle this. And he's, like, getting himself drunk on martinis and apologizing to her. It's a lot. But then they're at the dinner. Right. So point number three is this big business dinner, which is at one of those restaurants, those fancy restaurants where there's also, like, a full dance floor. I don't know if these places really exist, but movies have told me they do. They must. But I think they're probably all closed at this point. I'm sure the pandemic was not kind to them. Yeah, that's true. So, the dinner is, like, a pretty nice time, and Nick is pretty darn charming, which is becoming a problem for Kate because she's like, we are here to break up. Like, that is the objective here. Right. And he doesn't want to because he is starting to have feelings for her. Right. Like, when she first went up to meet him at the diner, he was like, yeah, you don't have to pay me. Like, I had been planning to try to, to, like, ask my friend for your number and ask you out. I thought you seemed cool. And so for a while at the dinner, he's refusing to stage the breakup. It's a pretty good scene because, like, the power dynamics in it are really fun. And that's where, like, I think the first hour of this movie is a pretty good time because it's so goofy. It is. And I love the moments where she's like pushing him to get aggressive. And then he's just complimentary and like super nice in response. And it's not until she finally starts getting like kind of mean to him and also starts like kicking him that he breaks up with her. Well, he like starts it, but then she (laughs) pays the mater D to stage a phone call for her. And it's like, it's the other woman, isn't it? Which I enjoyed. Yeah, because she's got to force the issue. And then he goes and he's like, yeah, because I'm being cheated on. You're having an affair too with your work. I I did laugh when he goes, you're having an affair too. And and one of the wives at the dinner just goes, she's gay. And then it just moves on. There's no acknowledgement of it. I like at the end of this whole dinner. Because she sets it up so that she's the victim because she needs that for work. And there's everyone's reaction. Like, Kevin Dunn is like, you may be a hero, but you're no gentleman. But Kevin Dunn's wife is just like, I'd understand if you cheated five years into marriage, but you're not even married yet, and throws a drink in his face. It's such a good scene. (gasps) She's gay. But so that's it. Like, they've gotten it done. Jay Moore gets stuck with the bill, which seems unreasonable. Yeah, she better cover that. And... When he walks out, Aniston is waiting outside, and she's like, we did it! Success! Great work. It's a little bit like that scene in Can't Buy Me Love, where 
Dempsey's like, we did it, success. They all believed that we hated each other. And the girl is like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, but he is probably less heartbroken seeming than her. Yeah, well, he's not a teenager. True. So at the very least, he can play it off better. And so, I mean, that's kind of it for their relationship. Yeah, point number four is this weird long period where Nick just seems to be still hanging out. Yeah, he's like around, but they can't be seen together because her boss hates him. It's really weird. He's like staying in her apartment for, I think, at least two more days. I don't know why, but he is. Yeah, and so like there's all this where like she's still trying to get with Kevin Bacon Kevin Bacon, like, accidentally elbows her in the face while trying to get his door open. And so everyone thinks that Nick hit her. Right. Is that his name? Yeah. But when she goes home, like, with her black eye, Nick is, like, taking care of her. He talks to Olympio Dukakis on the phone and is like, wow, I I really like your daughter. Well, see, now, what do you mean when you say words? You mean, like, physically now? I'm right here, Rita. But uh, you have to promise not to be shocked or think any less of your daughter, Okay. Right now? Um, well, a a pair of boxer shorts, a t-shirt, and a smile. (laughs) Yeah? Well, you know what? I am looking at your picture right now, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I like her a lot. (laughs) Well, in in fact, uh, I like her more every minute I spend with her. It's a very strange period of the movie. It is. And it goes on for a while, but not much happens. Yeah, this is the point where I really lost interest in that movie, because I was like, what are we doing here? I don't understand. We do get to a very weird point at the end, where we get two speeches. Yeah, so eventually, like, she and Jay Moore had been, like, kind of warming up to each other after the black eye thing. And she had said, like, all right, like, I'm gonna, I gotta go to work, but I'll call you later. And then she doesn't call later. And Jay Moore is like, yeah, it's true. Like, you really are too focused on your job. And he leaves. And she tries to be like, here's, like, the money I offered you for, like, you know, you've been not working and had to get down here from Boston. And he's like, why don't you just leave it on the nightstand? So he goes. And now she's just alone with her work like she had wanted to be. But in point number five, as you said, she gives not one, but two big speeches. It's so much. So in the first speech, she has a big presentation at a meeting. She is presenting their Super Bowl ad. And she stands up and then she just goes, I can't give this presentation. I've been lying to you. This was all staged. I wanted to dress for the job I wanted, not the job I had. Which is what Kevin Dunn had told her to do. Uh, Right. Uh, And then she runs out. But the whole thing is just like, first of all, you, you can't give the presentation right now. It's not a running to the airport situation. No. He's already in Boston. She very easily could have done it. Yeah. So yeah, she like confesses, like explains the whole movie to work, which is boring because we watched the movie. And then she runs to Boston. Oh, but don't forget her boss coming in and saying, I embellished my resume too. So which I forgive weird. you. It's weird. And also, just, like, you can't redeem this Kevin Dunn character. Yeah. He's supposed to be, like, a good guy at the end. Yeah, he's not, like, a charming guy who she didn't understand. He is manipulating and taking advantage of his employees. 
And so she she rushes to Boston where she finds the wedding that Nick is currently shooting. It is a church wedding. She bursts in before it starts, starts trying to talk to him. He is like, I am at work. Leave me alone. She lurks behind him while he's shooting the wedding. Keeps trying to talk to him. He's like, this thing has a microphone. I'm trying to pick up the sound of this wedding. And then she just yells. Look, I know I don't deserve it. But I would love another chance. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not asking for like a ring or anything. You know, I just want a date. You know, just a date. I mean, yeah, you know, I know I had to take a coffee. She interrupts the wedding. And at that moment, everyone seems kind of upset. But then she just gives a whole speech to Jay Moore about nothing. About the power of love. And everybody at the wedding is into it? Yeah, it's weird. It's so strange. I don't understand why people are enjoying this. I would honestly have liked to see some fallout from that whole situation. But nope, the credits roll over the two of them standing in the church. Yep, they just kiss. I will say this for Picture Perfect. It was a perfect cable movie in that I found it pleasant and enjoyable while I had it on. And the minute I turned it off for the first night, it flew out of my head. I do have to ask, Will, do you find the romance believable? No! No. It's It strains credulity, to say the least. Yeah. Um. There are just, like, you know, there's a lot of unnecessary lying in it. Thank God it doesn't, like, they're kissing and then they zoom out and it's their own wedding and someone is filming oh. them. Wow, you just, like, spoke a cursed thing into existence. <laughs> I'm sure that was proposed at some point. Can you not easily see that happening, though? No, I mean, I absolutely can. I mean, it's not that far off from what happens in, like, 13 going on 30. True. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most believable, where would you rate this? So... We gave both to All the Boys I've Loved Before and Can't Buy Me Love sixes. This gets a three, then. (laughs) Why is that? It's so contrived. It is even more contrived than Can't Buy Me Love. And they are adults. This is not, this is teenager behavior. There's also, like, I think that, like, every piece of, like, how Kevin Dunn engages with her romance has to be considered as part of the romance, too. I'm a two on this. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really consider the Kevin Dunn part of it. And the Kevin Bacon of it. Like, why is she so into him? Oh, the bacon was part of it for me. Oh my god, I'm dropping it to a two. Do you think that Nick or Kate is dateable? Um, Nick, yeah. I mean, Nick seems like a good dude. He's, like, almost ludicrously sweet. He did rescue a child from a burning building. Right, yeah. Also, that child is played by Kaylee Cuoco. Wait, really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's that one. She's credited as Little Girl. I mean, it's the only little girl in the movie. Yeah. I feel like Kate's a no for me in part because, like, I I would like to see the person I am with not be working quite so much. Yeah, her work habits are not good. Yeah. Um, Do you think Nick and Kate will stay together? I guess Nick could move to New York and film weddings there. Yeah, like, that should be easy enough to do. But I think he'd get sick of her work life at a certain point. Right. Yeah, I mean, you made the argument that the reason she's the only one who stays late is because she's the one without a life. But, like, I also just don't think she's going to stop 
working too hard on her bad ideas. Right. So I'm a no on Kate. So if you did have to pick one person in Picture Perfect to date, whom would you choose? I think it's going to be Darcy. Oh, that's a good answer. I don't really see who else besides maybe Nick. But Darcy is just the fun best friend. Like, she is a sitcom best friend and thus fun and dateable. I mean, you could have picked Olympia Dukakis. Oh, my God. No. I love Olympia Dukakis, but not this one. (laughs) She would be exhausting. She would be exhausting. You don't want that woman to have your phone number? No. Uh, I think I am going to go with Nick, just to keep it different. Okay. Nice dude. He is nice. We could make movies together. Now, here's a question. A lot of movies that we watch are adapted into stage musicals, so I do want to know from you, should Picture Perfect be made into a stage musical? I kind of think that's the ideal medium for this story. I think it would be very funny. Like, I think Picture Perfect is better suited for being a musical than a movie. The contrivances would feel much better. Because you have the heightened quality of musical theater. Right. And like that moment of meeting somebody and being like, oh, this I can latch onto. That works better on stage where everything is a little more surreal. I'd watch it. Yeah, might even be good. All right. I think we have addressed Picture Perfect. One last question, Mark. Yes. Why is this movie called Picture Perfect? Because they're in a picture together. And he films movies. I don't really think it works. It doesn't. He takes moving pictures, though. Oh, sure. They should make up a shortened name for that. Yeah, it's really cumbersome to keep talking about the moving pictures at all times. All right, well, um, thank you again to Jakendra for suggesting this to us. Next week, we're going to be doing another listener suggestion. Uh, We're going to be covering David Lynch's Eraserhead. Quite a shift in mood, I would imagine. I haven't watched it yet, but I can only say. We're doing a bunch of listener suggestions over the next month or so. We've already got those blocked off. But again, a reminder that you should email us your listener suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com or send them to us on Facebook or Twitter at lovethelovepod. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new people find the show. And I do want to say again, we love receiving recommendations. Please let us know what you'd like us to cover. It may take us a while to get to them, but we do have an actual list. Yes, there is a list somewhere and by somewhere i mean on a spreadsheet that i literally have in front of me i should not pretend like it's hard to find (laughs) well speaking of things that may be hard to find mark what is the best piece of dating advice you got from picture perfect wow that was so accurate um god practice safe sex i mean that's the most important advice in this yeah i was gonna say be realistic about what kind of relationships will work. I think for all of Kevin Bacon's flaws, he understands that a relationship between him and Jennifer Aniston is unsustainable. Wow. Well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye.